I'm Dan, I'm the campus pastor here, if you don't know me, and we're going to start off today uh, going through our Seven Churches series uh, through, we're going to be in Pergamum today, but where we're going to start today is in the book of 2 John. 2 John is an interesting book. It's just a short little chapter. We don't talk about it that much, and it's addressed to an older lady who was a leader in a church. Now, we don't know exactly where, but this woman was probably from one of, almost definitely from one of the seven churches that we're going to be reading letters to this, uh, this summer. And, and she's an older lady. She is either a leader of the church or at least owns the house where the church meets in her area. And John writes her a letter. And I just wanted to point this out because I think it's an important thing to remember. There has never been a healthy church in 2,000 years of Christian history, there has never been a, a healthy church without mature older ladies. That's just the reality. And we're all laughing at that, but you should be applauding for the older ladies in the church. Let's give them a round of applause. There's never been a healthy church in 2,000 years of Christian history that doesn't have mature older ladies. Now, that means all y'all got to mature, right? You're not all there yet, but that was kind of funny. And... But there's never been a healthy church in 2,000 years of church history that wasn't multi-generational. So every generation matters. So we have this older lady who's leader of the church, and, and John writes to her and says, Now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. He tells her, love one another. The simplest command that we've been given in Jesus is, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in this command, love one another, walk in obedience. Our task as Christians is not really complex. We don't have to figure out a bunch of ways to do it. It's not, a, it's not a matter of strategy. Our task is difficult. It's to love one another, to love God with everything and love one another, because sometimes one another's are difficult, right? Sometimes your one another's like have bad ideas about things. Sometimes they're loud. Sometimes they wear clothes that make you angry, right? This is a thing that happens in our world, but our command is to love one another, love one another. And as we go to the next slide, we see quickly that this is in response to a problem. No, oh, next one. Sorry, it's interesting. Go back one. That's fine. So that was my, that's my bad. Sorry, Simon. My son is running slides for me, and I just already threw him under the bus. So... That's entirely on me. Okay. What's interesting about this passage is that John writes this to solve a problem. The very next verse he says, I write this because there are many false teachers coming among you. There are people teaching that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. So the response to this problem is to love one another more, which is interesting. Because that is not generally how I was taught to deal with false teaching in Bible college. I was taught to like, you should make a website and put all of the false teachers on the website and then everyone will know that Martin Trench is a false teacher. 
He's the only, I, I, I'm not good enough to get on those lists yet. I need to like write more books or something. But like, it's, right? Or, or we've been taught to like, you need to oppose all false teaching and you need to get your, 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 your fists ready and fight and you need to, the answer that John has for false teaching is to love one another, which is really fascinating and the infinitely harder thing to do. I like fighting, I gotta be honest with you. I kind of enjoy it. I'm a little bit of a scrapper. In my younger days, it was probably unhealthy. And, and I come from a family, I learned that there were two kinds of families in the world, um, and that I come from one. I come from the kind of family that fist fights cousins at weddings, right? That is a thing that happens in my family. It's not unusual. It doesn't mean I hate my cousin. We'll get along afterwards, but sometimes, you know, you just got to tune someone up. And, but some of you are shocked by that. Some of you are like, what? You had, like, why would anyone ever do such a thing? So this is hard for me. It's hard for me to learn that the solution to false teaching isn't to fight false teaching, because I love that and I'm good, enough, good at that. The solution to false teaching seems to be to love one another, which is a much more difficult thing for me to do. We're going to pause. I'm going to jump back about 200 years in human history, and then we're going to come back to this. So about 200 years before Jesus, go to the next map. About 200 years before Jesus, uh, the Seleucid Empire ran the red parts of this map and, uh, most, uh, and was starting to make endeavors into the gray part of this map. The Seleucid Empire, this is 200 years before Jesus, uh, they, were start, they, were, uh, they were starting to make inroads in this area. And, and when we say empire in the ancient world, empire is a loose word. We would call this person today a local warlord. And his name was Antiochus II. And he had designs on, on moving forward, and, and, and like most ancient warlords, he spent most of his time at war. But he had a capital, and that capital was Pergamum. So Pergamum was the city, and Pergamum was ruled by a king. We would call him a, a hereditary mayor, but it was ruled by a king named Emmaus II. Oh, uh, so, so Antiochus II is, is starting to get more powerful, and he's starting to cause problems for the Roman Republic. He wants to start spreading further through Thracian at the top, through Thrace, and, and into Europe. And Rome doesn't like this. 200 years before Jesus, they're like, this is a problem. We don't want you coming any further into Europe. Well, how do we get this? So they had some battles. They had some very expensive and costly battles, both for the Roman Republic and for Antiochus II. And, and it was sort of a stalemate because the Romans were very good by sea. They would, they would, uh, they would come in and they would pillage all of the coastal communities that, that Antiochus II had taken over. That was a big problem for Antiochus. But, but Rome had a problem that, that they couldn't stop Antiochus on land. It was just all of their armies were being destroyed by Antiochus II, mostly because he had a large stable of war elephants. This is a real thing, it's not a fantasy thing. He had a large stable of war elephants. War elephants were the weapon of mass destruction of the ancient world. What made Rome interesting as an army and allowed them to take over the world was a turtle formation. A turtle formation is basically a whole bunch of soldiers gather in a square, I link my shield up with my friend's shield, my partner's shield, we all link our shields together, people behind us put their shields on top of us, and that's a turtle formation. And 
And humans have a very difficult time attacking that because they can't poke through. It's very difficult so they can just march forward slowly as a tank and never be stopped. The ideal antidote for a turtle formation is a war elephant. Because the war elephant walks in and goes like, there's your turtle formation, <laughs> right? We're done. Sorry, this is probably too fragile for that object lesson. Okay, so Antiochus II had a, war, had a large stable of war ele elephants. So they come to a deal. So we can go to the next slide. So they come to a deal, and it's really interesting because Antiochus gives up the most, but Emmaus, the, the, the mayor king of Pergamum, is the one who really benefits. Because basically Pergamum ends up becoming the capital uh, going from being the capital of that little blue, dark blue section to becoming the capital of the entire green, uh, light blue section and the green section, which 200 late years later in the time of Jesus becomes known as the province of Asia. And 200 years later, Pergamum is still known as its capital, okay? So Emmaus II really benefits from this, and most of the deal is Emmaus gets all of this, which is weird, and Antiochus has to give up his war elephant program, which makes me sad, but, you know, it was better for elements, elephants when they were wanted for war than when they were wanted for ivory. So, but, what's that, but where this is really important for us is that in the immediate aftermath of this treaty, Pergamum is very peaceful. So what the mayor king of Pergamum starts to do is he starts to build things because that's what you do when you've got a time of peace. You start to build monuments to yourself. You start to build monuments to other people. You start to build all of these things to let everybody in the world know that your city is great and permanent. And this is a strategic move because what you want your city to be is that empires can rise and empires can fall, but no one is going to destroy Pergamum. The mayor king of Pergamum, he doesn't really care if Rome's the emperor or he doesn't care if the Seleucids are the emperor. He don't care, it doesn't care if it's the Greeks or the Persians come back. If his city is big enough, is beautiful enough, is, power, is economically viable enough, then everyone's just going to leave it alone. So he builds all of these things. Pergamum had the second, library, second largest library in the world only to Alexandria. It was the capital of the entire area. It was the place where all of the ruling happened. And one of the major things that he built was, if we go to the next one, was this. This was called the Altar of Pergamum. Now, this took, obviously, a long time to build, and it was a fascinating piece of architecture because it wasn't a temple. It was merely an altar. But this, 200 years later, becomes known as what John says is the, the, this altar to Zeus. John starts calling it the throne of Satan. And it's not the throne of Satan because there's anything particularly demonic about this piece of, 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 of architecture and sculpture, but that's where the ruler was. This is where the emperor lived. And in a culture where everyone worshipped the emperor, this is where the seat of power was. So the governor was there, the person who was choosing to oppress them was there, and this piece of architecture, it's a fascinating piece of architecture. It really advanced architecture beyond anything that had existed in the world at the time. Before that, sculptures were very still, 
things that you sculpted didn't interact with each other. In this, you see uh, the pantheon of Greek gods wrestling with human giants. There, it's, it's active. There's a story being told in all of it, and it's really fascinating. And, and the other thing that we don't get is in the ancient world, we see these as white. In the ancient world, these would have been painted like a comic book. This would have been the most garish thing that you can imagine. It would have had bright colors everywhere documenting this story and this, and this, and this, uh, this monument to the permanency and the, the, the stability and the strength of Pergamum. And it's to this city that Jesus writes this letter. He says, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, right, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in the city where Satan lived. This, this is really fascinating this is a section of images, because all of these letters that, that, that Jesus writes to the churches through John have, have at least four things in them. They've got an image of Jesus that is personal to the church. They have a, a, a praise or, or, a, or a commendation for something that they're doing right. It has a, a warning or a, a, a condemnation for something that, they do, that they're doing wrong, and it has a reward. And each of those is particular and important for the church that they are. And it's interesting that Jesus starts off his image as the one, the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Can we go forward? This was a sharp, double-edged sword. It was called a gladius. It was the average sword of the Roman soldier. Okay? And it's a very effective sword. It's pointy and it's, uh, and it's sharp on both sides. Two-edged sword, okay? What makes that interesting is anyone can use it. You don't have to be good at swordsmanship to be dangerous with this thing. A lot of swords that existed in the ancient world and even today, if you don't know how to use them, you're really only a danger to yourself. Um, you're probably going to cut off your own fingers or your hands before you do any damage to anyone else. This one, you could give it to a toddler and they're going to do a lot of damage with the stabbing and the poking, right? Don't give it to a toddler. And Jesus says he has this sword in his, in his hand. He's ready to go. And the reason why this was so important for Pergamum is Pergamum was the seat of government, okay? Government leaders didn't have this kind of sword. That was beneath them. Common people had this kind of sword. Soldiers had this kind of sword. Government leaders, leaders like Jesus would have been considered to be, had this a pugio, which was a dagger. And most of them would keep it hidden because it was undignified to be carrying weapons. But they would have a, a hidden pugio, and a pugio wasn't used to attack people. It was used for suicides and assassinations mostly. So we go back to this first words of who Jesus was. Go back to the first one, please. And it's interesting. So Jesus has a two-edged sword. He's ready to fight. He's not hiding it. He's ready to go. And yet Antipas, his faithful witness, still died in that city. So you can understand that there'd be a disconnect here for the people of Pergamum. It's just like, okay, our pastor, Bible teacher, Antipas got killed in this city. And you're saying you know where we live? You're saying that you know the throne where Satan sits? You say that you know that Satan sits here? You say you've even got a, a sword in your hand? You're ready to fight? Then why is Antipas dead? 
why there's a, can you understand the disconnect there? Have you ever felt going through something that if Jesus were really who he said he was, wouldn't you intervene? If you re were really as powerful as you said, Jesus, why wouldn't you have stepped in to prevent that person from hurting me? Why didn't you do it? This is the, what the people of Pergamum have been facing. And like you, through your own trauma, the people of Pergamum have stayed faithful. They've said, I don't get it. I don't get it why you look like you're ready to fight and you're not fighting. I don't get why you say that you know where we live and you still let Antipas die, but we are going to remain faithful to your name. And that is what they're praised for. And I just wanna say, if you're in that place where you're holding on to your faith difficultly, and there's a part of you that just wants to rage at God for saying, how dare you? How dare you expect us to sing that you're good when you watched what happened to me and didn't intervene? You are rewarded as well. There is peace and there is hope for you. You are his faithful witness and you are commended for it. So don't think that God doesn't see it. Don't think that God doesn't see that you're hanging on by the skin of your teeth sometimes. Don't think that he doesn't see that your faith is a fight for you. And don't think that he doesn't understand that you hurt because he, in his wisdom he refrained to intervene when you wanted him to intervene. He was capable and he chose not to because his plans are bigger and greater and he understands your pain, but there's something bigger than that going on. The city where Satan lives, let's go to the next. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. This is uh, an obscure story from Numbers 31, but basically this is that people are being taught that they can still follow Jesus and do whatever they want, that they can add Jesus to the pantheon of gods that they have in their life, and it's just going to be okay. This is a false teaching that he's concerned that they're allowing to exist among them. Can we go to the next one? Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. This is really interesting. He doesn't say I'm going to come against you and punish you for allowing to. I'm going to come against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword of his mouth, which is different than the, 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 the sword of his mouth, which is a metaphorical sword as opposed to the literal sword that he's got in his hand. These are interesting situations. So, the people are dealing with false teaching that exists in their church. And, and Paul says, uh, sorry, and John says to them, you're, I, I don't like that you're making room for this. So what is their solution to this? Well, he already gave it to us in 2 John. Love one another. This is the exact same thing that he was facing that he wrote the letter to the lady about in 2 John. This is the exact same problem. This is the exact same people, same situation. Oh, there's some people denying that Jesus came in the flesh, which is probably what the teaching of the Nicolaitans was. Here's the deal. We don't know what the teaching of the Nicolaitans was. Lots of people speculate. We're all guessing. I have a theory that I'm going to propose to you later. It's a decent theory, but it, as all of them, it's a theory. And what's fascinating to me is that this which was the biggest deal at the time, is gone. This controversy, 
which was so present, which was so concerning to John that he had to write, so concerning to Jesus that he had to talk about it. He had to specifically mention the specific false teaching and controversy after all of this 2,000 years later. It's not even remembered anymore. What is remembered is the command, love one another. Obey God's commands. It's such an interesting thing that the things that we think are so important and permanent and dangerous within a few short years, they're gone. I'm old enough, and I'm only middle-aged, I'm old enough to remember numerous controversies in the church that when they first came about were the most dangerous thing that was going to happen to the church, and now no one remembers them anymore. I remember lots of times predicting, people predicting when Jesus was going to return, and he didn't, and that was the worst thing in the world, and no one remembers them anymore. It's gone so someday, all of the controversies that you're so concerned about, the worst things that you think are being taught in the church today, they're going to be gone. Not because we're good and smart and crushed it and fought against it well, but because Jesus is faithful and in time it just drifts away, eroded and blown away like sand. It doesn't matter anymore, and it will shock you how much this stuff just disappears. Because Jesus takes care of it. Who is going to do the fighting with the sword of the mouth? Jesus is. I, I've been in ministry for a long time, and I once had somebody leave my church because I felt that they felt that I wasn't doing enough to protect them from false teaching. And the reason they felt that I wasn't protecting them enough from, from false teaching is because I didn't spend a lot of time specifically addressing false teaching from the pulpit, that I didn't identify whatever thing that they didn't agree. And I agreed with them about most of the false teaching. I didn't, it wasn't an issue about that. They were just, they were concerned that I didn't talk about it enough. And, and it, it, this is something that I take seriously, that all the pastors here take seriously, because it's our job, one of the few jobs that we've been given as church leaders is to protect you from false teaching. But strategically, it's a really bad idea for us to play false teaching whack-a-mole, okay? Because they just pop up all the time and disappear again. And as soon as you've written a book about that book that's gone bad, there's another dumb idea that's popped up over here. And now i got to spend every single sermon just smashing down bad ideas about who Jesus is. And that's a dumb way to teach. It's, it's ineffective. It's pointless. What I would much rather do is teach you the truth about who Jesus is. And teach it to you so well that when you hear nonsense, it's just like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Jesus loves you exactly the way you are and never expect you to, expects you to change. That's not right. Of course he expects me to change because I need me to change, right? People that are go, Jesus loves you deeply, but only if you obey all of these specific set of rules. Well, that doesn't sound right. I'm terrible at following, following rules. That's how I got in this situation to begin with. Right? We want to teach you real teaching so well that false teaching just sounds silly and you have no room for it in your heart. 
but we don't get there by showing up here angry with swords and fists and ready to fight every false teaching every day. I would love to do that. I would so love to do that. I wish that was actually a job. I wish that 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 was productive in the kingdom of God and that it genuinely brought people to Jesus, but it just doesn't. What does is allowing Jesus to fight against them with the sword of the mouth and go next. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Most of you remember, but manna was the food that was given to the Israelites on their journey from Egypt to the promised land. That it was this mysterious Manna in Hebrew just literally means what is it? It's this mysterious substance that would gather like dew in the ground and they would eat it and they would be sustained. Jesus promised these these people that if they're victorious, he will sustain them. They will have life. They will have the things that, that, that will give them joy and life now and for eternity. They will be sustained. And he would also give them a white stone with a new name on it written known only to the one who receives it. This also refers to ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, when they're having a, 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 a confusing problem, they would go to the high priest who had two stones, a black stone and a white stone. They were called Urim and Thummim, and they would shake them up, and they would, and, they would, and they would throw out a stone, and if the black stone came out, it meant no, and if the white stone came out, it meant yes. And Jesus says, I will give you a forever yes with your own name on it. No one else gets to tell you who your identity, who you are. Only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. To the one who is victorious, who overcomes, who conquers, you will be given life now and for eternity. To the one who conquers and overcomes, you will be given identity that is sealed and secured and safe now and for eternity. To the one who conquers and the one who who overcomes. So how do we conquer? How do we overcome? How are we victorious? Again, love one another. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not complex, but it's incredibly difficult. And it's only through that obedience to love one another, that we are victorious. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Not your websites that have all of the false teachings marked. Not the buildings that you've built to document your power and your stability. Your love for one another. One of the theories about the, can we go back to the, thank you. Can we go back to the throne for a bit? Thank you. One of the theories about the Nicolaitans comes from this throne because this altar to Zeus was also in front of the temple uh, of, of Athena and, 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 and of the goddess Nike. And the goddess Nike uh, is the goddess of victory. Some of you have those shoes. I am an Adidas man because I love Jesus. And it's fine. They're all fine. They're all fine. LeBron's good, I guess. But the goddess Nike is the goddess of victory. So there's some speculation that Nicolaitans has to do with people who have who've tried to incorporate this, this worship of victory 
into their worship of Jesus. That because Jesus was victorious over death, that's what gave them permanence, and they were gonna they were gonna exalt and idolize victory. And that's what this was a monument to was victory, power. We defeated, not really defeated, sort of came to a treaty, but it's the the salute. This was built for a victory in the same way that Canadians celebrate victory in the War of 1812. It was a tie. Like, and I know that that's shocking to many of you who studied Canadian history, but literally it was a tie. Like, we just, it was a tie. But, and this ended up being a tie, but they declared it a monument to victory. And do you know what? This permanent monument to victory, do you know where this actually is now? It's in Berlin. In the 1800s, Pergamum was so far gone as a city that no one knew, barely knew that there was a, a city there. In that part of the world, there's ruins everywhere. People were going to, what, to the side of Pergamum. They were breaking this apart, and they were taking the pieces of marble, and they were building new houses with it. This thing that was a monument to the permanence of the power of Pergamum was gone. And a man disassembled it piece by piece and reassembled it in a museum in Berlin. And no one remembers Emmaus anymore, and no one remembers Antiochus II anymore, and no one remembers the Nicolaitans anymore, and no one remembers those victories anymore because it's all gone. Because that's what happens to human endeavor when we expect it to save us. But what does last in Jesus' eyes? Love for one another. Love for one another. The Bible is so clear. If we can go to the next one. Yeah, just stay here. The Bible is so clear, and this is, again, it's not complex, it's just difficult, that more important than any monument, more important than any legacy, more important than any memory that you can build is love for one another. Jesus cares more about if you are kind to your neighbor than if your name is in obscure history books thousands of years from now. The most important thing that we can do as followers of Jesus isn't to build monuments, isn't to conquer the world. We conquer by loving our neighbor as ourselves. And that's so much harder. It's so much harder than attacking the world around us because we're scared of it. That is the challenge that we've been given. And I would ask you if you're, if you're ready to undertake it. Are you ready to put aside the part of you that wants to pick up your own sword and remember that Jesus has a sword in his hand and he's going to take care of it? Are you willing to lay down the sword of your mouth that wants to attack your enemies and, and remember that Jesus has the sword in his mouth and he'll take care of it? And are you willing to remember, even when it's hard, even when they're wrong, even when they're evil, even when they're stupid, to say, I'm going to love my neighbor, not because they deserve it, but because I've been commanded to by the king of eternity, and it is to him that I have given my allegiance, and it is to him that I will devote all of my energies now and for eternity. It's not complex. It's incredibly difficult. So let's pray together. And as we pray, I would ask that you prepare your heart to take up this challenge. 
to lay aside your own desire for scrapping, to lay aside your own desire to run away when things get hard and do the incredibly difficult thing that Jesus has promised that he'll be with us through is to stand courageously and love our neighbor and love one another with everything that we have. God, you have the sword in your hand. So I pray that you help us lay ours down. You have the sword in your mouth, so I pray that you help us lay ours down. And when we see Antipas being killed in the throne of Satan and we ask you why you're not intervening, I pray that your spirit will remind us then that absent from the body is present in the Lord with the Lord and even now you are in control. And we, when we want to build monuments, when we want to feel safe, when we want to be permanent, we ask that you would remind us what is true and what lasts, and that is love for one another. The only actions that matter are the ones that are out of love, love that follows you. So I ask that as we take up this difficult challenge, that you would give us the ability to do it because we don't have it on our own that we would lay down our hearts, that we would lay down our souls, and that we would lay down our weapons, and that we would simply and courageously follow you in obedience. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.